Hey guys, and welcome to the Pacing Racing Podcast Experience, the Canadian Triathlon Podcast made in mind for the age group triathletes. Now, today's guest is none other than Cody Beals. Now, Cody's been one of the biggest up-and-comers in Canadian triathlon, and I think we're going to see some amazing performances this upcoming season. So, now obviously one of the reasons why I'm happy to have Cody on the show, because he's had an incredible backstory that has led to a successful 2018 race season. Now, Cody absolutely crushed it in Ironman Mont-Tremblant, and I remember watching this live on TV, and I was just in such awe, and I was completely inspired. Now, for those who don't know, Ironman Mont-Tremblant 2018 was Cody's first Ironman debut, and not only did he come first beating triathletes like Matt Russell and Lionel Sanders, but he also smashed the course records. Now, as you'll find in this podcast, Cody's a very methodical and science-driven triathlete, and he's a complete wealth of knowledge. This podcast was so much fun to create because Cody's very genuine and has a great story to tell. And in this episode, we discuss his race tactics, nutrition strategies, his 2019 race schedule, and what has influenced him to decide to race Kona for the first time this upcoming October. So Cody, thanks for coming on the show today. And I think we'll be in for a real treat watching your Kona 2019 debut. So guys, let's cue the music. So today's episode is brought to you by our two sponsors who I'm excited to represent. The first one is Scody. Now, by now you've heard me talk about Scody in the past few episodes and how they have some of the best triathlon suits and running apparel on the market and have some of the best custom kit designers on hand. Now, one thing we haven't talked much about yet is their cycling apparel. And I think it's fitting seeing as today's podcast, we interview Cody Beals, who's an absolute weapon on the bike. Now, Scody offers full custom cycling kits offered for any kind of cyclist out there, and they have several styles of kits. So if you like the cycling jersey and cycling bib, which seems to be the most common choice for triathletes, then they have some really nice designs that you can check out on their online stores. And they also have some cycling nicks, which are also known as shorts, and you can pair them with any sort of cycling jersey of your choice, and you're good to go. Now, what I like about Scody's cycling apparel is that all their jerseys and nicks and bibs are all breathable material and have very little drag, which is a great feature, especially in long-distance rides. Now, the designs on their shirts have this thing called sublimation printing technology, which means that their designs won't fade, they won't shrink or crack over time. And another nice bonus for all the ferret skin folk out there, that their shirts all have the SPF factors of up to 50 plus for those hot and sunny days. So just take a look the next time you go to a race and just be cognizant of what apparel people are wearing in the race. And I think you start to draw some paradigms between the best looking apparel and the Scotty brand because it looks like they have the best tri-suit designers around. And like I said, you'll get a ton of life out of their apparel because all of their apparel is professional grade and wearing it won't chafe on long races and you won't suffer the wear and tear like many of the cheaper products do that are out in the market today. So if you want to check them out, you can find them on Instagram by searching at Scody AUS and that's spelled S-C-O-D-Y-A-U-S or you can go to www.scody.com and you can find them on Facebook by searching Scody Australia. Now, the second sponsor is a brand that's been dating back to 1993 and has held the test of time, and that is Blue 70. Now, Blue 70 is a triathlon and swimwear company that are probably most well-known for their professional quality wetsuits, but they also have a massive inventory of swimwear like swim skins, jammers, gear bags, goggles, and pool accessories. Now, what are pool accessories? They're basically anything to help you train in the pool, like hand paddles, pole boys, kickboards. They have core shorts or buoyancy. And for all you crazy swimmers out there who go in the open water as early as March in places like Canada, they also have thermal swimwear, which will help you in those colder temperatures. Now, one thing that triathletes may or may not be familiar with are jammers. 
Now, jammers are swim shorts that look similar to cycling or triathlon shorts. They're used in competitive swimming, and many triathletes actually use them in training in the pools. Now, what's unique about jammers that help our swim performance? Well, in swimming, the single most item that slows you down is the drag of your body or what you're wearing. So that's why you see slender body types have less drag, and therefore, by using these compression-style shorts like jammers, help minimize your drag as much as possible. Now, remember, you may not think a simple pair of jammers make a difference, but you'd be surprised. Many competitor swimmers actually only measure about 0.1 second apart when racing, so swimmers will use every advantage they possibly can over their opponents to make them that much quicker. Blue 70 is also known to have the best training jammers and performance jammers, so if this is something you want to try out, then definitely look into it and be sure to check out their website. Now, for all you out there who are curious to see more Blue 70, then hang tight because I'm going to be making a YouTube video on the wetsuit review so we can go look into it at detail. We'll go over all their pool accessories so you get an idea for how to use them and when to use them in your swim training. So if you're searching for basically anything for your swim training and swimwear, which I think everyone's always looking for ways to improve their swimming, then check out Blue 70 on Instagram at Blue 70 or you can go to www.blue70.com. And if you're on Facebook, search Blue 70. So, Cody Beals, welcome to the Pace Racing Podcast, man. How you doing? Hey, Stephen. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm doing really well. No, oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure is all mine today. So, obviously, you're a busy guy. It means a lot that you've uh, taken the time today to come on and talk. So, um, let's talk about, I saw you post on Instagram lately that you've taken part in a run-to-read program, and you got to speak with students grades three to six, and you got to talk to them about sort of running and reading, and you got to show them all your, your triathlon gear. So, how was that? How'd that go? Oh, it was a really good time. I mean, that morning I woke up, I was sick. I kind of had to drag myself there. But as soon as I got to the school, talking to all these grades, three to sixes, they were so enthusiastic. It was really just this infectious enthusiasm, and it really turned my day around. So the impetus behind that, you know, I'm at the point in my career where I'm, I'm starting to look for ways to give back, and I've, I've had a ton of uh, support from the triathlon community. So it's nice to be in a position to give back a little bit. But also, you know, I kind of caught myself becoming a little too self-absorbed. It's easy to get take yourself a little bit too seriously after you've had a good season and get just too obsessed with the pressure and the expectation and the commitments and all that. So, you know, this took the focus away from me. And, and I think helping other people is a really good thing to do just to, uh, to stay in touch with positive emotions. Awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. And yeah, of course, you had a pretty crazy season last year, which we'll, we'll talk about here shortly. But that's a, that's a good idea. It's a good way to stay sort of focused. And Actually, in the same time, too, you've also been pretty busy with your newest member in your home. It seems your cat, Bean. So how is Bean settling? <laughs> yeah, Bean, Bean was also, <laughs> Bean's my anxiety animal. <laughs> <laughs> so I got, I got Bean because, you know, I was, like I was hinting at before, I was having a pretty anxious off season, having some trouble sleeping and stuff. And uh, my boyfriend also kind of had to twist my arm. He's been wanting a cat forever. So we found a little two or three-year-old tortie that we adopted from the local Humane Society. And her name was Bean, which I wasn't, I kind of felt lukewarm about that name at first, but I think it fits now. She's really small and uh, we like coffee around here. So uh, yeah, the name stuck. Perfect. It's fitting. Yeah, it's awesome. So <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk about your backstory. I mean, so most people know who you are, but for the minority that don't already know your background, if you could just fill us in quickly about like who you were, what you did sort of before triathlon. Yeah, sure. I guess how far do you want to go back? If you go all the way back to my introduction during, to endurance sports, that was kind of cross-country skiing as a kid. And then uh, did a bit of swimming later on, but I never really considered swimming to be my first serious sport. I don't have a real swim background, kind of half a swim background, I like to say. 
So from about nine to 16, I was doing some competitive swimming in a summer league. And I sort of picked it up running along the way because my mom was always a runner and my dad was a pretty serious cyclist. So I also picked that up as well. And sooner or later, I kind of connected the dots that there was a sport that combined all three disciplines that I'd already been doing. So I started to dabble in triathlon, uh, but the focus was always on school and always on running. And then I went to Queen's University and studied first engineering and then ended up graduating in pure physics there and ran cross country over two of my years there, my last two years. And after I graduated, I kind of gave myself a chance to pursue triathlon. I was feeling pretty burnt out with school and academia, decided that I you know, didn't want to pursue a PhD or anything like that, like I originally thought I'd want to. And so my life kind of took an interesting turn. And uh, after pursuing triathlon really seriously for a couple of years, I had a breakthrough and uh, won my first half distance race, the Ontario Provincial Championships, set a course record, went under four hours. And my mentors around me and these, the, all these supporters started to kind of whisper in my ear, you know, maybe Cody, you can earn a living at this. And I sort of scoffed at them and didn't really imagine I could actually make ends meet doing something like this. Um, but that was five years ago. And it's hard to believe that five years have just flown past now. It's been deeper down the rabbit hole every year. So what was initially some people kind of having to press me to take my pro card, I'm really grateful they did because now it's turned into a, a career and a lifestyle. And I can't imagine myself doing anything else. Awesome, man. Yeah. And then now we flash forward to 2018, which was an incredible year for you. So you came first in the 70.3 Ironman Taiwan, and then as well as first in Victoria and Eagleman 70.3s. And then you did your first debut at the full Ironman at the Ironman Mont Tremblant. And not only did you come first, but you also crushed the course records. You also secured a spot at Kona for 2019 with another first place in Ironman Chattanooga. So how amazing sort of do you feel looking back on that crazy success of a season? It was really a dream season. I think I surprised myself as much as anyone else. Uh, I had some inclination that my Ironman debut would go really well. Um, every time I've moved up in distance, I've done relatively better. So that was, that was one trend I hoped that would extrapolate. Uh, but also, I've always had this freakish fueling ability, which I know we're going to talk about later. And I've given a lot of thought to nutrition. So I figured I had that, that, fourth dis that fourth discipline being nutrition really dialed in. And I knew that became increasingly important as the distance went up. So all the pieces of the puzzle really came together. It's the product of this long-term plan with my coach, David Tilbury Davis. And yeah, I mean, suffice to say, I was as, as shocked as anyone else that it went quite that well, but I was expecting pretty big things. Awesome. Yeah. Now I like how you held off on the Ironman debut for so long. Like, um, so Taryn Gazelle, like triathlon Taryn and I, we spoke in one of our previous podcasts that you, um, spent a lot of time doing sprints and Olympics before even jumping up to the 70.3. And then once you mastered the 70.3 then you finally decided you were ready to sort of test the new waters in the full Ironman and it was a very methodical approach and I think that's an important lessons I think new triathletes can sort of learn from as opposed to like just thinking like jump right away to full Ironmans. Absolutely I mean to put some numbers on that I did my first triathlon when I was 16 years old that was a super sprint distance and I did sprints for the next three years I think and I finally did an Olympic when I was around 20 or 21. And I finally did a half, like seven years after my first triathlon and practically two decades after my introduction to endurance sports um, when I was about 23 and didn't touch my Ironman for the first time until I was 28 this last year. So yeah, I really bided my time and I think there's some good lessons there for everyone. Unfortunately, and I say unfortunately, I really mean it. It's a shame that in our sport, there's this mad rush towards Ironman. And I think a lot of people feel pressure, whether you're a professional or an age grouper, it's kind of seen as the be all and end all. And I, I really disagree with that mentality. I think I could have, could have had a fulfilling career racing sprint distance, for example. I think it's an awesome distance. And even if your, your ultimate aims and objectives are Ironman, and that's the, something you really have to tick off your bucket list for whatever reason, 
your long-term development in a lot of cases, I think for most people is best served by focusing on those shorter distance first and paying your dues there before even considering moving up to longer distances. Awesome. That's really cool. And yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that's, I think that's right on point. Now I always like to ask pro triathletes sort of what was their first race where they felt like, like, Hey, like, I think I can sort of do this full time and become a pro. So obviously like you never imagined that you make it this big. So was there a certain race that you kind of went into and thought this was the one that maybe you can commit this full time? If I had to pick any race, I would say it was my, my very last race as an amateur. It was uh, 70.3 Muskoka back when they still used to have a pro field. And I started well behind the pros in my age group wave, men 20 to 24. And uh, the day went really, really well. I rode really well, had a great run, and ended up finishing fifth overall. And because I was an amateur, I actually couldn't collect a paycheck, which kind of sucked. So <laughs> if I had, if I, I had lots of other motivation to consider going pro, but that was kind of the last straw, I think, was, oh, wow, I can actually get paid at this, but wait, I can't collect this paycheck today. Thankfully, I had a, I had a sponsor, Giles Atkinson, step in and actually make up the difference with me, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, that kind of showed me that I could, I could kind of hack it with the big boys. Incidentally, Lionel Sanders won that day, big upset. I think he beat Andreas Railert. So, uh, it was pretty cool to be part of that. And I, I started to realize that, you know, even though I was still 10 plus minutes behind Lionel and Andreas, I, I could still be in the mix in the professional field. And it wasn't long before I was starting to vie for the, the top spot. Very cool. And thanks for sharing that. That's, that's awesome. Now, Let's sort of fast forward a bit to 2019 season coming up. So you posted your race lineup recently on Instagram and it looks like you start off with the Ironman 70.3 Taiwan, which is uh, this month. And then you have Challenge Cancun in April, which I believe is a 70.3 race, correct? That's correct. Yep. Okay. And then, so what are your sort of goals, or your thoughts going into these two races? So I wanted to structure this season in a similar fashion to last year. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel after last season. Like I said, it was a dream season. So I'm trying to, to uh, you know, learn, learn everything positive I can from that, but also take a critical look at it. And I think one thing that went really well last year was sort of the broad periodization of the season. And that was racing several 70.3s in the first part of the season and then switching gears and having a bit of a departure in my training to focus on Ironman and then racing two Ironmans in the back half of the season. So looking at 2019, it's a very similar structure. On my, on my calendar, I have four 70.3s and then three Ironmans. And the, the training isn't drastically different between those types of events, um, but it's, it's subtly different enough that I wouldn't pretend that I could be world-class at 70.3 and Ironman at the same time. In fact, I could give you such a short list of guys in the world that can really be you know, truly world-class at both disciplines simultaneously, and I wouldn't count myself among them. So I'm not trying to split the difference there because that doesn't tend to go well. I want to be world-class at 70.3 and then switch gears and really nail the Ironmans. So looking at these first two races of the season, I mean, obviously the goal is to win. I mean, I'll be honest, like it's, I've won six of my last eight races. I'm on a four race winning streak. So anything less than a win doesn't exactly further my career at this point. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, no. I, and I know a lot of people, including myself, are going to be really excited to be watching that because we're all going to be rooting for you, especially the Canadians. But, uh, so. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Now, after those races, um, those first two, you'll be tackling the Victoria Ironman 70.3 again in British Columbia. And it's crazy because right after that, I think the next weekend you're going, you're, I don't know, I assume you're going to be flying away to Maryland in the States to race the Eagleman again? Yeah. So I'm racing those back-to-back -back again. They were back-to-back -back last year when I won them both. Um, not the easiest double in the world. Victoria is a tough course and it's on the opposite side of the continent from Cambridge, Maryland, where Eagleman takes place. Uh, Victoria is cool and rainy and hilly. Eagle Man is hot, flat, and windy. So pretty different races. 
uh, it's definitely a challenge, but I, I enjoy that. I've always liked back-to-back -back races because it's kind of like, a, I consider it like a two-for-one special. You do this big build, you get really fit, and then you have two opportunities to hit the ball out of the park. So if, you know, if something goes wrong at one of the races or you have an off day, that build hasn't been for nothing. Uh, that said, I have definitely learned from this in the past, and I, this hasn't always gone really smoothly. Um, last year, obviously, the Victoria Eagle Men double went brilliantly. I've had some tough experiences with doubles where it hasn't gone well, and my key take-home from that has been you really have to have the week in between totally dialed in. If you only have six days to recover between races, especially races with quite a bit of travel in between, everything has to go smoothly that week. So that means not staying up late, doing social media after a race, getting to bed early, eating really well, keeping the stress to a minimum, keeping the travel logistics as simple as possible. All these things have to fall into place. Otherwise, you're kind of hamstringing yourself in advance for the next race, I think. Yeah, for sure. I, I think when I saw that, I didn't, I didn't really put together two and two that they were back-to-back -back weekends, but especially the, such a far travel. So that's pretty cool that you're able to sort of manage that. And hopefully this year again, just like last year, pump out a couple first places because that's a, that's a great title to sort of keep as the reigning champ. I hope so. Yeah, Victoria is going to be a pretty competitive race. Uh, hopefully we'll see Brent McMahon back there and maybe Taylor Reed. Um, I love racing in Canada. It's kind of like a race within a race among the Canadian guys. <laughs> and yeah, Eagle Man will be going after a fourth win there, which has only been done, I think, once before on the women's side. It's a pretty historical, storied race. So it'd be really cool. They, they carve your name on this big monument in Great Marsh Park where the, uh, where the race takes place every time you win. So I'm uh, wow. vying for that, that fourth name on the plaque. <laughs> yeah, that'll be amazing. And that's, that's my first 70.3 of the season. So I'm going to be pumped. I'm, I'm going to be rooting for you. I'll be way behind on the course, but uh, I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I'll see you there. <laughs> yeah. So now uh, after those two weekends in June, you uh, then switch over to the full Ironman mode, right? So you're, you're taking on in August, the Challenge Roth. Now, how pumped are you to be uh, in that stacked Challenge Roth lineup? Uh, equally pumped and terrified. So they just released the start list and it's basically like Kona round two, like six of the top 10 guys from Kona last year are going to be on the start list as well as some other, some other kind of dark horse athletes, myself included. So it's a really stellar field. They always put together a great field there. They do a great job, but this year in particular, I think they pulled out all the stops to make it a really world-class race. So yeah, I mean, I, I won kind of two B-rate Ironmans last year, if I'm honest. And it's time to step up and start competing at the highest level in Ironman. So I put Roth and I put Kona on my schedule very deliberately. And uh, I'm going to prepare to do my absolute best there. But I fully expect it could be a humbling experience. I think what really scares me is that I've never really been pressured all the way to the line in races that I've won. So in my six 70.3 wins and two Ironman wins, I've always won by a pretty wide margin, which is nice. Uh, you know, it's nice to be able to enjoy the last half of the run and not be running scared the whole time. Um, what I think is really terrifying is getting, getting chased or hunted late in an Ironman. And, uh, I mean, I've been in that position before, not, not racing for the win, obviously. And what kind of motivated me to seek out these bigger races is that reflecting over my performances in my career so far, the ones I'm most proud of haven't been the wins where I've, I've won easily or, you know, not easily, but by a large amount. Uh, but the races where I had to empty the tank to come second, third, fourth, fifth, those are the ones that I can really uh, be proud of and hang my hat on. So that's the that's the motivation behind Roth and Kona first and foremost. Awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. And so now seeing as you're switching over to the full Ironmans around August, now how does your training volume and intensity switch? Is, uh, is there going to be a big change in your training program? So I, on my schedule, I have three Ironmans in three and a half months and that's ambitious. I, I'm the first to say my coach, David Tilbury Davis really didn't like that idea. So this is kind of on me. I'm racing Roth 
in July and then Tremblant in August and Kona in, in October, obviously. So building into that, I know that's going to be extremely demanding and that started to impact how I was training and periodizing my schedule all the way back to the end of last season. So after Ironman Chattanooga last, uh, at the end of September, I took a couple weeks essentially totally off and then really gradually eased back into it. So it amounted to my biggest period of downtime pretty much in my adult life, at least over the past decade. And even so far this year, I've taken more days completely off training than I have in some entire seasons, some entire years in the past. So I looked at, before this podcast, I just glanced at uh, average training volume, which is not something I usually actually even measure or, or monitor. And I'm only at about 17 hours a week on average so far this year. So I'm really not already digging into those deep reserves I'm going to need later in the season. Um, I'll be honest, I'm not at peak fitness right now, and that's exactly how it should be because it's early March. So uh, I'm biding my time and playing the long game to be as fit as possible in July, August, and September, October. Awesome. That's really cool. That's interesting how you broke that down. Now, in October, obviously, you're going to be tackling your first shot at Kona. And now I'm looking at right now a piece on Slow Twitch blog um, that it was on one of your nutrition strategies um, back in August, 2018. Uh, you replied to someone's comment sort of stating that Kona 19 doesn't currently appeal to you. Now, obviously uh, what was your initial reason, I guess, for feeling that way? Because obviously it's changed now because you're, you're doing Kona now. Yeah, Stephen, first of all, I'm impressed. You've done your research. You've uh, been digging deep into the slow twitch archives. So <laughs> yeah, I, I was pretty public about the fact that I wasn't super keen on Kona initially. And I kind of said like, Oh, It'll be like a two or three year plan. I sort of just kicked the can down the road a little bit. Uh, but for better or worse, the triathlon world revolves around Kona. Um, the business side, the fan side, media, everything. So one thing I came to realize is simply the public perception of declining that slot that I earned last year in Chattanooga would be harmful to my image and to my career. And as much as I don't want to have to consider that, the reality is I'm running a business and sponsors want you to be in Kona, fans want you to be in Kona. So I'm listening to that. But those aren't good enough reasons to absolutely bury yourself on the Queen K, you know, during the race. That's not going to keep you going, that, that extrinsic motivation. It needs to be internal. So since then, I took this lot perhaps for the wrong reasons, for, to please other people. But over the past few months, since I, since I kind of decided to take that slot around October, I've made peace with it and really started to get fired up about it and start to find the right reasons to race there, like I was hinting at before about reflecting on my career and thinking about what performances I'm most proud of. And I, I came to realize that, if I never took Kona seriously or never showed up there as a contender, I'd have regret at the end of my career, whether that's two or five or 10 or 15 years from now. So it's something I have to do. And I think now I'm doing it for the right reasons. Awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. And I mean, we're all excited that you're going to be going to Kona. And as uh, Canadians, we'll be rooting for guys like you and Lionel Sanders for sure. Um, we're hoping for a Canadian win. But I mean, like I remember it was you and Taryn had a podcast and you guys mentioned that you uh, said Kona is humbling and that you don't expect great results in the first race. Or not that you don't expect them, that you, you aren't like banking that you're going to have a great race because it's an impactful course and it's uh, a very humbling course. So what sort of uh, strategies are you going to be bringing to Kona with training? Um, obviously, because you've never raced this uh, course yeah. before. Yeah, first of all, I want to backtrack a little bit on that because I was saying something similar recently that, oh, you know, Kona, most people get humbled the first time and same with a race like Roth. And wow, what an ambitious plan I have doing three Ironmans in three and a half months. They can't all be perfect. And uh, a pro, another pro, who I, a retired pro who I really respect, straight up called me out on it as just kind of sandbagging. And, uh, you know, I need to go into those, that ambitious schedule with the mentality that I can be a contender, even for the win at all of those races. 
So it's hard for me to admit that. Like I really, I spent the first part of my career consistently being underestimated and downplaying my strengths and sandbagging all the time because I like the underdog position. And I catch myself trying to cling to that even though by no one's account anymore am I an underdog in pretty much any race. So those days are over. I have to accept that. I have to own the pressure now. And actually leading into Chattanooga as kind of a personal sports psychology exercise, I challenged myself to try and own the fact that I was a favorite to win that race. So Tromblant, you know, there was barely any attention paid to me before the race. It was like the last race where I could be a total underdog. All the attention was on athletes like Lionel and some of the other stronger guys on the start list. Leading into Chattanooga, the talk was that, you know, I, want, I was going to win that race. I was the favorite. So, yeah, I admitted it in a couple interviews. I said, like, I want to win this race as dominantly as I won Mont Tremblant. I want to win it by 10 plus minutes. And, you know, then I delivered on that. But, yeah, that kept me up the night before <laughs> because it's hard to be able to, to, uh, to own that. And I think there's a distinction between being, being cocky and self-assured about it and just being quietly confident. And, you know, I'm still learning to find that balance, I think. <laughs> Cool, man. Yeah, no, that's great to hear. And yeah, it's cool to see the change because you're obviously a very humble, humble athlete. So you're not going to be just going around tooting your own horn. But I think you've kind of your record speaks for itself, right? Like you've, uh, you've had a crazy 2018 year and you're fiercely competitive going into 2019 season for a lot of these wins. So um, yeah, that's great to hear. I'm glad that pro triathlete sort of brought that to your attention because I think that's a great way to look at the season. Yeah, I was grateful. And it actually happened on slow twitch. And there's a lot of good learning that happens on slow twitch. There's a lot of bullshit there too. But if you know who to listen to in that forum, uh, I joke that I've been coached by slow twitch in the past, because if you find the right, the right handles and usernames to listen to, there are some real uh, gems there in terms of information you can pick up. Awesome. That's cool. Now let's uh, talk a bit about nutrition and on the course nutrition. So um, I consistently find that I mean, most amateur or age group triathletes struggle with the concept of how to keep their like, hydration and their nutrition topped up on the course. But yet it seems like uh, many pro triathletes out there anyway, just sort of have it down to a science. But um, for the amateur or the age group triathletes, uh, what are some tips you can give them to kind of help them decide on the best course of action for nutrition on say like a typical Ironman 70.3 distance? Yeah, so I, I would backtrack a little and say pros definitely don't have it all figured out. Uh, if you just read any race reports or posts after races, especially races that haven't gone well, like at least half the time pros are blaming nutrition or some kind of mishap with nutrition or needing to get that figured out more. So, yeah, I mean, we generally put more thought into our careers in general because it's a full-time job. But uh, by no means do pros have nutrition figured out better than age groupers, by and large, I would say. So tips. Um, number one, I guess, practice in training with what you're going to use in racing. This is kind of a no brainer. And this is like the oldest advice in the book. Don't do anything new on race day. It's such a cliche and a truism for a reason. It's, it's really good advice. So you really have to practice exactly what you're going to do on race day and not just to make sure it works, but increasingly there's research suggesting that this can actually help you um, acclimate and adapt to being able to take in more and more calories and more and more carbohydrate in particular. So there's a pretty strong trainable component to things like glucose and fructose metabolism, it would seem. So it's definitely worth learning to push big calories. Uh, sometimes in training, I'll even challenge myself with things that are, I'd say, even harder than race nutrition. So on race day, I just take in pure carbohydrate in the form of liquids. Um, in training, though, I do all kinds of stupid things. Like yesterday, I had a long ride, and I literally stopped in the, in the fourth hour before a hard interval set. And I had a veggie burger and fries and a milkshake. <laughs> and then I got back on the bike <laughs> and did the intervals <laughs> and yeah it felt kind of nauseous and horrible and it was sort of a silly thing to do it was just a, a dumb craving 
but there's actually some benefit to that, I'm told. So initially I was just doing this for my own entertainment kind of. And I talked to my buddy, uh, Mark Linsman, who's a kind of current slash former pro triathlete who also does a lot of research into uh, this line of study. And yeah, he kind of suggested this is actually a reasonable strategy to challenge your gut even more than it's going to be challenged on race day to help push it to acclimate and adapt. Sorry if I'm botching Mark's quote here, but I'm just paraphrasing our discussion. So yeah, that's definitely helpful. The other thing, get really scientific about your plan for race day. So I have a whole spreadsheet with my 70.3 and Ironman nutrition down to the gram, down to the, the gram of carbohydrate, the milligram of caffeine, when I'm going to take this stuff in, how I'm going to get it, how I'm going to carry it, what aid stations I plan to hit, if any, how it's going to be stored. So really minute details like that. And I'm constantly tweaking it based on testing and racing and training. So it's not enough just to wing it. It's not enough just to go in with a rough idea of how many calories an hour you want to hit. You really need to have a precise plan. It needs to be executed like a military operation. Awesome. That's, uh, that's amazing to hear. And picturing from the amateur athlete's perspective, uh, you say you use it all in liquid form. Do you use any gel packs? Yeah. So I would kind of consider that liquid. I guess it's, uh, you could argue okay. that, but Perfect. typically on, on the bike. So for my two Ironman so far, I took in about 2000 calories, give or take on the bike, which is kind of at the extreme upper limit. So for someone riding uh, Trombleau and Chattanooga were both relatively slow courses. So let's round up and call it four and a half hours. Um, that's, that's a lot, that's getting close to 450 grams of carbohydrate an hour, which if you read any research or talk to anyone, that's sort of the extreme upper limit that makes me quite an outlier. I would say with the ability to absorb carbs and not get sick. And I handled that pretty well. I could maybe even argue I could take in more, um, on the run, I was a little bit more flexible. So I'd start with a flask with about 300 calories in it, of pure carbohydrate. And then as the run would progress, I would pick up gels at aid stations, sips of sports drink, Red Bull, Coke. And this is all stuff I practice with in training. So I'm pretty good with basically any source of carbohydrate, barring like solid food. I wouldn't really touch that in an Ironman. Uh, so anything goes late in the run. Whatever I'm craving, I'll just grab. But I'm still trying to make sure that I'm hitting appropriate grams of carbohydrate per hour, you know, well north of 300, even late into the run. Okay. So, so your main, your main sort of point you're trying to get to is carbs per hour. Um, are you, you also watching calories or, um, caffeine, anything like that? Well, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a, it's the same thing essentially to talk about calories per hour or grams of carbohydrate per hour, because I'm taking in pure carbohydrate. If you're someone, uh, let's say you're like a 16 hour Ironman athlete and you plan to take in a bit of fat protein just to help make your stomach feel a little bit fuller, then I would say you'd want to make a distinction between calories and grams. I kind of use them interchangeably and the conversion rate is just about uh, four calories per gram of carbohydrate. So no, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. That's good. That's good to clarify. Now, are there any golden rules you follow? Like sort of do you, is there a strategy you might try like taking a gel pack before the swim or have X amount of carbs on the bike and then you sort of switch to some water in between or, or is it just sort of, you kind of hit those hourly marks of carbs and, and then just water whenever you feel thirsty. So I would say, uh, first of all, let's start touching your first point there before the swim. Yes. It's really important to be really well fueled beforehand. Um, I don't have, I don't stuff my face before an Ironman. I pretty much just have my normal breakfast, same before 70.3, which is more or less the same kind of breakfast in terms of calories and composition I'd have on a typical day before a morning swim practice or another workout. So nothing really shocking there. Um, one thing I think that really helped in Mont Tremblant where I had one of my best swims ever second out of the water, the race was delayed by an hour and we were standing around in the cold there while the fog cleared. And uh, a lot of other athletes were like shivering and hungry and stuff, but I packed extra food because I'd actually been in that situation before where a race had been delayed in the cold like that. So I made sure that I kept the, the glycogen topped up and I wasn't getting hungry before the race. So I think it's really important 
no matter when you think the race is going to start, throw in an extra gel or two in your morning bag because uh, you might really be thankful for that. During the race, yes, I'm keeping a, I'm keeping a rough calculation of uh, what bottles I should be getting through at a, at a given time in the race. But I'm also going a little bit based on intuition and feel. So that can lie to you, uh, but to some extent it can be helpful. So the first hour of the ride at Ironman Mont-Tremblant, I actually did the math after and I took in 700 calories. And uh, that's like getting close to 200 grams of carbohydrate. That's too much, to be honest. <laughs> no one's actually absorbing that much. You're just starting to back up your digestive system, basically. Right. So that was a little too much. That's an incidence of me needing to be a little bit more careful and a little bit on those, that monitoring and those metrics and you know, measuring time and carbohydrate. I find in practice, you know, it's an Ironman. You're focusing on a million things. The best thing to do is to even put little tick marks on your water bottle so you know roughly how much you should have drank by a certain point. Um, one limitation I find with my approach of having all liquid calories, especially on the bike, is that your, um, carbo your carbohydrate and fluid consumption are inexorably bound to each other because you just have a given concentration of calories in your bottles. So that's kind of one knock against that approach, I would say, because sometimes you might need more fluids, but not more carbohydrate or vice versa. So before a race, I kind of look at the, the climate conditions and mix the concentration of bottles at my best guess of the ratio of fluids to carbohydrate I'm going to need during the race. And sometimes it doesn't go perfectly. Like last year at uh, 70.3 Victoria, it was quite a cold morning and I barely got through like my first bottle. So I was short on calories coming off the bike as a result. Um, so for that reason, it's not a bad idea to pick up a gel or carry a gel or two, because then you have some calories that aren't totally tied to your, your liquids. If you do plan to go with a mostly liquid nutrition approach. Awesome. That's really cool. And yeah, I just kind of wanted to reiterate uh, quickly that um, going based off your blog. Um, now I don't have it up anymore or else I'd, I'd kind of rhyme off some of the things that you, you mix, but you said you create these mixes of drinks that kind of find your balances of all the nutrients that you need for each race. Now, do you recommend that's what other people should sort of try or any tips that you can kind of give them to, to start that? I mean, obviously it comes down to at the end of the day, what works for them, but any starting point tips? Yeah. So you're right. The nutrition is very individual and what works for me, I can say with certainty won't work for some other people. Um, but the key word here to look at, if you're doing some, some research into this is multiple transportable carbohydrates. And the principle behind that is that let's say you can only metabolize a fixed amount of glycogen or glucose rather. And that's the most common that, that makes up the bulk of calories in typical sports drinks. And you could completely max out that glucose pathway, but you still have the ability to absorb more fructose. So there's these two different transporters, two different pathways for metabolizing these different things, glucose and fructose. And so you can max out one without starting to impact the other too much. So the, that's kind of the basic premise, I guess, behind my approach to fueling is that I have this ratio of glucose to fructose in my drinks that's really dialed in to allow me to maximize total carb use or total carb oxidation. So for me, it's about a two to one ratio some of uh, glucose to fructose. Some people really don't tolerate fructose well, um, so they can't handle nearly that much or even any. And I think that's one reason we don't see a lot of commercially available sports nutrition products that have pure fructose in them. I think they're just afraid of uh, you know, losing potential customers because it might make them sick. But if you can tolerate fructose, the optimal approach is going to be to have a significant component of fructose, maybe even up to 50% or more. So for me, for Ironman, I used a combination of, if we're going to, I don't want to get off into the weeds too much here, so let me know if we're getting too technical, but I'll just rhyme off what I did. I used a mix of maltodextrin, which is like this long polymer of, uh, or so this long chain of glucose molecules and fructose. 
and amylopectin, which is a starch that also consists of glucose. So it might be a little bit redundant with the maltodextrin, but basically I used a two to one to one ratio of maltodextrin to amylopectin to fructose. And that worked pretty well for me based on a lot of testing I did. Wow. That's, that's really cool. And, and now that's written in your blog, correct? So I believe there's, there's an out, there's an outdated post uh, that talks a little bit about this. Doesn't mention amylopectin, but you could kind of take or leave that. It's probably the least important component of that mix. Um, yeah, I should update that blog post. Actually, the best place to look, if you dig through the slow twitch archives, I didn't ask me anything after Moltron blah on a thread and I got really into great detail, probably too much detail about nutrition there. So for the nutrition geeks, you can check that out. Um, I'm also pretty light on the electrolyte side. So that's another thing that people may or may not, may or may not work for different athletes. I'm not a very uh, heavy or salty sweater. So 70.3 is I don't really supplement any electrolytes at all. And for Ironman, I still keep it pretty minimal. I'm not, I'm not popping salt tablets in the run or anything like that. And uh, the last thing I'll add about nutrition is I'm pretty deliberate about the caffeine intake. So I don't just like have a random cup of black coffee in the morning and, and call that good for caffeine dosing. Caffeine is a hell of a powerful stimulant. I've heard it said that if it was discovered now, it would be regulated right up there with cocaine or something. So I try and respect it for the kind of drug that it is. And for racing, I dose caffeine in you know pill or gummy form and measure it very precisely into my bottles so I know exactly how much I'm getting at different times. Um, and I've had some pretty interesting discussions and read some research there about how to dose caffeine for an Ironman. Um, the thinking is that if you start caffeine too early for an Ironman, there's no way you're going to be sustaining like an eight hour caffeine high or let alone a 17 hour one. 70.3, four to six hours. Yeah, you can probably keep yourself riding pretty, pretty high on caffeine the whole time. Uh, so for an Ironman, the thinking is to ramp up dosing over the course of the Ironman so that you're really getting the most benefit from it when you really need it, when you're starting to fatigue mentally and physically at the end of the run. So um, I'll be pretty light towards the start of an Ironman with caffeine, just a little bit to help with the swim start and not really touch it again until the latter half of the bike. Really cool. Awesome. That's a lot of great advice. And I'm glad so people can uh, check out your blogs and uh, check the archives on slow twitch if they want some more, sort of more detailed information on that. Cause uh, I think that is great. A lot of people out there would love that kind of information. So awesome. Now, lastly, one other thing I just kind of wanted to ask because you're, you're a pretty level headed guy to ask this, um, what's some advice you can give to a first year triathlete, um, which they sort of be focusing on. Um, so they don't feel overwhelmed or find themselves in an overtraining situation or they go even overspending on unnecessary equipment because, um, as we all know, triathlon is a very expensive sport and it's a very, like you said, people might get the mentality that they should jump to full Ironman too early. So uh, what's some sort of advice to kind of keep them, uh, keep them on track? I think you've already actually touched on the point I wanted to repeat there and that's to come up with a priority list. So a lot of people walk into their nearest sports store and say, I want to be a triathlete. What do I need? And they can drop, you know, 15 grand and all kinds of equipment. Uh, it's not necessary. So I raced for years on, well, my very first triathlon going all the way back to then, I raced on my dad's old steel road bike and it went fine. I didn't have a wetsuit or anything like that. You don't need all this gear in order to ascertain whether or not you actually enjoy the sport. That can come later. And even after you've established you enjoy the sport, there are many ways to cut costs in terms of equipment. Uh, one thing I detest about triathlon is all the barriers to entry. So I love the sport, but it's not necessarily the most accessible sport. Um, so I think it's important to try and lower those barriers to entry. So I'll be loud and clear on this. You do not need a $10,000 bike. Sorry, Benton, my bike sponsor. <laughs> if you're just getting into triathlon, <laughs> if you have the money, great, go for it. If it's not going to you know, cause any marital strife or anything like that, please yeah. go for it. I can help you out. But you really don't need all that stuff. So the priority list, I would say, 
first and foremost is to make sure your training is effectively as possible. Not necessarily as much as you can, but as efficiently as possible. And the best way for a lot of people to do that is to hire a coach or at least be part of a club so you're accountable to other people. I think that's some of the best money you can spend. So for years, I was self-coached in triathlon and I can't tell you how many mistakes I made, just mistake after mistake. And I was, it was kind of masked by the fact that I was talented and I was doing well as a result, but I had no idea how good I could actually be until I started to track down some of those errors I was making. And that didn't happen until I started working with uh, David, my coach. So that was the best move I made in triathlon. And I would you know, challenge a lot of people to spend money on a coach before anything else. It's, it's kind of funny that people will, will scoff at spending you know, even 200 bucks a month on a quality coach, but they'll think nothing of dropping $1,000 on the latest and greatest wetsuit. It's kind of ass backwards to me. Right. <laughs> focus, on the, focus on the training and the engine before the gear. They're not mutually exclusive, but if you're on a limited budget, that's the order of priorities for sure. Awesome. Yeah, really good advice. Thanks for sharing that. Now, all right, so I want to try something new on this podcast uh, with you here. So because there's just so many questions to ask, we'll try and do a, a one to two minute uh, Q&A fire round. We'll see how many questions we can, uh, questions and answers we can pump out in about one minute. And uh, are you in for this? It'll be sort of short answer based. Yeah, sure thing. <laughs> All right. So I'll, uh, if you're ready, I'll uh, set the timer here and then I'll uh, start firing off some of these questions. Okay. All right. So favorite race distance? 70.3. What's your go-to pre-race breakfast? Oh, it varies, but I'm going to say a banana, peanut butter, and uh, oats. Perfect. Now your favorite local race? Multi-sport Canada race bridge. Awesome. Uh, I'm trial start river swim. Really cool. Beautiful. Now what's your uh, worst discipline or least favorite discipline between these swim, bike and run? Oh, that is a hard swim right there. Yeah, for sure. Swimming. <laughs> awesome. So uh, most beautiful place you've traveled to. Oh, I'm going to have to say 70 point Victoria. Nice. Uh, who's your biggest influence in triathlon? That'll have to be my coach, David Tilbury Davis. Uh, what's your favorite podcast or audiobook that you listen to? You know, I'm not much of a podcast guy, Stephen. I hate to break it to you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I don't really listen to audiobooks either. <laughs> no? <laughs> All right, no? perfect. Good enough answer. Perfect. Now, <laughs> favorite sport that's not triathlon? I'm just not a sports guy either. <laughs> it's the worst. I don't watch any sports. I barely even follow triathlon. It's terrible. <laughs> awesome. All right, well, we'll get this question here. So who are your 2019 sponsors? Okay, that I can do. <laughs> so, um, Ventum is my bike sponsor. Sunto is my watch sponsor. I just signed with Wadi Inc. as my apparel sponsor. Martin's Family Fruit Farm is a local apple orchard I've been working with for a long time. Stack Performance, one of my most intriguing sponsors. And Zizu Optics, another one I'm about to announce. Alto for wheels, Skechers for shoes, Blick for uh, Bluetooth audio, and Keystone Communications, my very first sponsor. Awesome. Really cool. And um, have you either done or considered doing any Zwift racing? That's also a hard no. No Zwift racing. I've never even given it a shot. I listen to music on the trainer and that's it. Don't even watch TV. Not interested. Perfect. <laughs> and then last question here. Who do you train with the most as a training partner? Oh, that's been 50-50 between Jackson Laundry and Taylor Reed, my boys right here in Guelph. Awesome. Well, cool, buddy. That's a wrap. Um, I obviously, I keep going all day, but I'm, I'm sure you got the a uh, busy day plan for training and everything. So I won't keep you here any longer, but uh, thanks again for coming on the show, man. My pleasure. Yeah. Nap time is next. Uh, Taylor Reed, speaking of him, tore my legs off yesterday over a hard 30 K run. So uh, 
it's a recovery day today, suffice to say. <laughs> awesome. Perfect. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me on the show, Stephen. This was great. Yeah, no worries. And um, actually, for those out there who uh, don't already follow you, where's sort of the best place they can get all your content? Oh, hit up my website, codybeals.com. You can find links to all my social media there if you're interested. And I promise, as I've been promising for a while now, I will get back to blogging more often. It's definitely on the horizon. Just bear with me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, best of luck and good luck in Taiwan. Thanks, man. I'll see you at Eagleman. Awesome. All right, take care. Well, guys, there you have it. Cody is an incredible role model in triathlon. He's a wealth of knowledge. I'm so glad we're able to have him on today's show. Now, if you guys want to hear more podcasts like these, then hit that subscribe button and you can follow me on Instagram at pacing.an.racing. And you can also follow us on YouTube by searching pacing and racing. Now, as always, I'd like to offer you guys some exclusive discounts to a few great brands that I'm an ambassador for, but due to the ambassador policies, I obviously can't post these codes just on public platforms. So in saying that, if you go to my Instagram page, again, that's at pacing.an.racing, and click the link in the bio, sign up for the email list. It just takes two seconds, just your first name and your email. And I'll send all my subscribers an email with some of the 25 to 60% off discounts to some of the great companies. So lastly, if you did like this episode, please just take two minutes and leave a kind review on the podcast channel on iTunes, as this helps us get heard by more listeners through the podcast platform algorithms. So other than that, guys, thanks so much, and we'll talk to you next time. 